Welcome to Radio Free XP, Season 1. We were definitely not recording. And, it was very funny. And so this, yeah, so this, this is actually a redo of that. Well, before we redo that, I have a vital question. What okay. is going on in your background there? That looks amazing. Oh, and, this? Yeah, yeah. so it, I'm from Michigan, and I love the greenery. I live in the desert, though, where the greenery just does not thrive like this. So this is very fake, but it's real in that, it, like, I can go and touch it. So it's not a fake Zoom background. Right, right. It's not Over fake. here, these are the living things. They're doing, they, they, they fluctuate between good and not good. So they just fill the space behind my chair if I move around. But, um, yeah, that's, that's the whole story. <laughs> well, you know, it's visually verdant. I like it a lot. <laughs> Probably good acoustic properties. Yeah, somewhat. Let There's not a lot of echo in here, that's for sure. I didn't really think about that. Win-win. I'm out, everyone. Offline police. I'm just going to say, welcome to Radio Free XP. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is Mala and Jesse getting to know each other. Hello. <laughs> Hello. We just started. Nice to meet you. And now it's it's hard. We have to get back to the before part. When you have an introduction, it's actually happening before you're starting to get to know each other. And so we were already getting to know each other, but now we've backed to the introduction. We're like, oh, yes, hello, you're another person. Do we know each other's names? Is that important? Should we? <laughs> uh, I know your name is Jesse. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm Nala is yeah, the pronunciation on that. Great. I, I guessed that correctly. So we're off to a good start. Uh, I, I like meeting people in software because I can remind myself that first 30 times that I forget someone's name. You know, that's the feature of name tags too, but those always make me so uncomfortable for other reasons. I like that these ones disappear if your mouse isn't over it. Um, yeah. not, not and they can't, lie. and the, I like that you can't see me checking. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's high. no like eye drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just, right, yeah. I so, feel like it's almost kind of fun. Sorry. Go ahead. Right. I'm just trying to keep us uh, above the waterline, but <laughs> Mala, Mala, I do the, I do a rolling A and it's a, yeah. it's a deeper A. It's Mala. like mana versus mana. You do mana and I do mana. So uh, Mala, is it Mala. offensive to hear Mala? That's the question. It does not offend me. Okay, I'm free to express your name and that's okay with you? Is that how it goes? It is okay with me. Thanks for Okay, I'm, I'm sticking with Mala because I like the long rolling <laughs> A. The first, the first time on Radio Free XP is, Mala, how did you get into this whole XP thing? And you're special. You're like, you're special. You're, you're a client <laughs> pivot. You're right. special. You're, it, I was so just, I can't tell you how glad it made me to simply meet you. Like to just like have you walk in and we have this very brief conversation. I'm like, oh, you get it. And I'm like, how do you, how do you get it is essentially what I said. And you're like, oh, I was blah, blah. I'm like, okay, now I, now we are fully, we are aligned ultra high dimensionally on what's going on. I was just so overjoyed. You're in Arizona too with me. And so we, you know, we actually breathe the same air. Um, the same blasted ultraviolet air. <laughs> ultra, yeah. The, the same ozonated, <laughs> like, it's so hot here. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to, because for Radio Free XP, one of the major things is to, is to describe this experience. What's it like when you learn uh, that you can work this way and what does it get you? And I know that we have a specific case, like you definitely cannot go back. And so uh, I wanted to introduce you to Jesse because there's a way that people who know how to pair start meeting each other. And I'm, I'm, we're going to cold open on what your cold open was because it's just like that. And then that's it. I'm the cork to keep things from spinning out of control. But 
tell your story and Jesse get her story out of her about how she learned XP. All right. Thanks gotcha. for the brief. Yeah. So I feel like what I was starting to kind of reflect on earlier is that Jesse, you had said, we've started to get to know each other before an introduction. And I had this moment where I was like, this is, of course, of course it would be like that because we both come from a pairing background where the goal is to find common ground, right? As quickly as possible. And then to just like keep going from there. It doesn't cool. necessarily mean like, like it doesn't matter whether or not I have, you know, these degrees or these accreditations or you do, or you don't for whatever is going on in your life, but rather like, can we work together and let's go do work. Right. Yeah. Uh, have so you ever you, run in? Oh, go ahead. go ahead. I was gonna say there are a few questions on the board right now as far as like how did I get into it? Uh, what did I think uh, when I started and why do I keep doing it? Why do I view this as something that's like non-negotiable? So those are like some really big uh, questions that are on the board slated towards me. So wherever you want to dig in, are, I'm are happy to follow. Are these on a literal board because you're taking notes on something that yeah. is yeah. This is this is a technique I used to use uh, note cards like index cards that I would arrange in a stack and be like, okay, hold on, that's not what we're doing right now. I because love we that. Have you can these... literally pop the stack. Yeah, this is this is pairing technology that everyone develops for themselves. These little fluencies in keeping each other oriented and trying to decide what we're going to do because you can almost with someone who's experienced with pairing. And I think it's brilliant for Tony to be like, okay, what we're capturing on camera today is just this thing happening. But people who want to work together do want to, as soon as you start recognizing that you know each other on this like working level, you go straight into trying things and straight into doing things and you pull out all your little tools and it's like, okay, I'm going to keep track of things that have been said that I want to come back to because I know that otherwise this pair won't move forward. Uh, at least a pair with me in it needs someone yeah. needs this technology and you started doing it you reached the threshold of actually doing this i'd say about a minute before i would have <laughs> but now you're doing it and i probably won't right and that's just a, a way that it happened to emerge in this you don't need two note takers right you just right. speaker and a scribe and you get two note takers a little bit more when you have remote collaboration because the stack can't just be open on the desk in front of you in the way that i would often have it be if we were in person but when i say can't be there are obviously ways that we could try and facilitate this technologically that I don't think. Yeah, I've, right. yeah, agreed. <laughs> I've definitely do it with like an online um, document. I'll just make a list, right? Yeah, Which is yeah. essentially your stack, just visual. And there's cool things you can do with screen sharing from an iPad or whatever, if you're doing it. Like there's just all these ways people develop technologies. I don't have note cards in front of me that wouldn't have stopped me from using the stack technique. I would have just used a different format of it. So yeah. Anyway, what have we got on the stack? Let's just go there. Uh, uh, of... First, we've got how, second what, third why. All right. So you are self-interviewing right now by keeping <laughs> track of the questions that Tony brought up. But uh, all right. What do we mean by how? How does that? Let's turn how? that into he a had, He had asked, how did I first get introduced to uh extreme programming, pairing? Um, I know Tony refers to it a little bit differently than I do. To me, it's just pairing. <laughs> Um, because I didn't necessarily learn about this through being at Pivotal, but rather uh, through a really happy accident of employment. Technically, yeah. I started working at a place that 
was like, hey, we've been doing waterfall ever since we opened business doors. Maybe we should try not doing that. As a part of trying to do that, they contracted Pivotal, uh, which I believe you both are from as Pivots. Mm -hmm. And they sent out, um, I think it may have just been actually just one pivot or maybe it was a pivot pair for a little bit. And then we um, had another one that like, half of that pair kept coming back or would at least respond to us uh, with questions that we had. And we had so many, but we learned about the ins and outs of how to pair. Why do we pair? What does it look like when we pair? What are some uh, things that we can really do really well with that? What are maybe some limitations with that? And then we were just kind of left on our own in like this vacuum after getting this like huge dose of culture and we got to try to like curate and grow it uh for about well, a year and a half until i left and i know they continued after me for sure but that's all i can speak about but that's kind of the how of how i got started and along those same lines like my experience with pairing is certainly colored by the fact that about a month or a month and a half after i started there and helping to hire all those devs in there and getting started in pairing, I became a product manager professionally for the first time. So I went from pairing to watching other people pair in and out of my team as they swap between different teams. So I got kind of a, a, a hands-on and then an observe and facilitate view on it. And that I think gave me a really deep respect for it too. So, so you were making a, an engineering to product management role and or career shift it sounds like it ended up as a career shift did you think of it yeah. as a career shift at the time oh, for sure yeah it was a career role. shift i've been wanting for years and finally had somebody advocate for me there uh, he's somebody who is still here in phoenix that just wrote a book recently and to my knowledge is probably still the same very cool person he was back then that he is now i just haven't talked to him in years which is sure, why I'm sure. What's, avoiding who, who... Oh, I see. Okay. Well, yeah, you like, communicate to us in another way and maybe we, he goes on the guest list. Maybe we talk. To this <laughs> right? so. Yeah. I just, I don't want to say for sure that this person's an amazing person if something has happened in the past seven years. <laughs> right. But well, uh, So with that disclaimer well, out there well, in the public world, his name is Jordan, Jordan Collier. Uh, so C-O-L-L-I-E-R. I know on LinkedIn, he's promoting his book or whatever. Um, I haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jordan. Uh, but he was the person who helped advocate for me. And uh, definitely, I think, makes me look back at that experience is not just was I lucky in that I got to be introduced to this version of uh, working as an engineer, but also what it means to be a great product person through this way of working as well. Awesome. So You'd been looking to do this transition. You found out about the Pivotal thing and you were in a position to directly interact with the way that Pivotal spread culture through. Oh yeah, no, we weren't asked. It was just, hey, these people are coming in, you're learning. Right, right. <laughs> we went, okay. Here's, here's Pivots, pair with them. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. I mean, that has to be injected into the engineering muscle, right? That's That doesn't go, that's where Pivotal can be applied. Mm -hmm. There, There are some other practices where it can work, but in this case, you got that and then quickly switched. Did you have Pivotal support in that product management journey yeah. as well? Okay. Yeah, we actually, they gave us different playbooks, uh, like the product owner playbook, the product manager playbook, uh, a few different things along those lines. And those are things that even after I left that job, I think I messaged uh, the Pivot the Third. I was like, do you still have that? Uh, at that point, I don't think he was a Pivotal anymore. And it honestly probably was not the most appropriate thing for me to be like, hey, back channel, I lost that document, right? He did not respond. Um, but it changed how I thought about delivery and how I should interact with my roadmap and stakeholders and stuff. And uh, 
I guess maybe change isn't the right verb because I hadn't really professionally had the experience of doing that quite yet. But I think it put me in a position for a lot of success early on, which continued to hook me on the I love products and working on products and solving product problems. So. Just breathing that for a moment. <laughs> it's interesting to lose resources. This is something I think about a lot about the advantage of working on anything that's even nominally open source. And I see pivotal influenced designers and uh, product folks, especially have a harder solution to this because on the engineering side, we can get we get references for our own work in the form of open source code bases or in forms of like the dev articles that we write for each other. The stuff for product managers and designers is more likely to be branded in this way that feels kind of weird to keep sharing, right? It's on a slide that has like corporate badging and maybe has words like confidential or for internal use only like on it. Yeah, and that's really that's very unfortunate true. because these are the, these, like re these replace our own note taking that we're more comfortable sharing with each other, but it's also uh, I, I don't know, it's this vital stuff of forming collaborative patterns of like, oh, I want to communicate this system, this way of thinking and doing things to you. And yeah. unfortunately, the only version of it I have has some stamp that I'm not. It's not my stamp anymore, <laughs> right? And so I uh, yeah, I almost feel. Out. Yeah, it almost seems like part of what you're describing to me feels almost like a trust problem in that if you're having to remember everything in your brain all of the time, that's a system that's going to fail, right? So you write it down on paper so you can trust that this paper will keep track of this for you. Just like you've got your note cards, I've got my list, uh, I've seen Tony write lists as well when we've paired and when you can trust your resources, it makes for a much more pleasant working environment. Certainly, I think more productive, but at the very least, we can say that it's more pleasant and you can do more because you don't need to keep track of all that state. So when you change jobs and these ways of thinking that you went, oh, I don't need to write this down. This is already in a resource for me to lose that. It's almost like you're losing part of your own ways of working that you had trusted that was written down. And, and that's, I hadn't really thought about it from that lens before, that's wild. Yeah, it's it's true, certainly in anywhere that that is deliberately cultivating a practice. I see product management or design practices deliberately cultivating this. They have practice materials and you just sort of count on it to be around. Um, but I first be, this came to my attention the first time I lost access to a code base just due to internal rotation at Pivotal, actually. Uh, and I had a couple of rotations without losing access to code bases. So I was just really used to being able to be like, oh, how do I, how do I do this? How did I solve that one problem that it's one like, time? Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. Here it is. This is, this is the test pattern I use. This is the way that I used Ginkgo to structure this assertion in a way that made the interface easy to test instead of having to do all this mocking that I'm seeing in this project that I don't want to repeat or whatever, you know? And then the first time I lost access to that, it was like a severed limb situation where I was like, hold on. I, you're, you've made me stupid. <laughs> you, you, <Yeah. laughs> like, you cut off some of my intelligence by like this automatic process that happened in GitHub. Yeah, that's interesting. So like, I, I see Tony waving at us. So I think to bring it back into pairing and my experience with pairing, I think this is a really large corollary of why me observing this happen to other people, my first time experiencing this is noticing things that were similar to that because we had six different products that 
our pairs in our in our lab would rotate through in the same room and having that ability to cross communicate there to cross learn and to re-reference past things and also things other people have done i think is what made pairing for me like such a cool thing because in your experience you had already done this thing and go in a different repository you have memory that it had happened there was a way to do it whereas me your pair sitting here trying to write some go and i'm like yeah you know like let's start building it. You're like, whoa, 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 we are making wheels when we could just already use a car, right? The fact that you know that already gives, I think uh, one of the things that Tony and I have been talking about when it comes to pairing and talking about pairing within Phoenix and the larger ecosystem here is the idea that instead of trying to find like your, your 10X programmer or whatever with your 3 billion IQ, why not make that yourself by simply adding two people together? And it doesn't really matter. You don't need half a billion IQ on each side, right? And it's experiences like that that help us. And sometimes in this example that we've been talking about, it's sometimes it's past us and current us, right? And even that can be a really large asset when it comes to working with another person. Tony, I know you're desperate to tell us what you're listening to right now. So go ahead and do that. <laughs> you are listening to Radio Free XP with Jesse Alford and Mala Janus. Thank you. So there's this thing where you've just used implausibly huge numbers as terms in a mathematical equation. Right? You, you talked about billions of IQ. I really yeah. like that technique, by the way, trying to get people to not accidentally slip into actual math when what I want them to be doing is metaphorical math really served by ultra high numbers. Yeah. Like implausibly it's, giant numbers keeps people from accidentally trying to do to like taking it too literally. Exactly. Yeah. I used to have this friends group where we would intentionally do things thought experiments and we would come up with the thoughtiest thought experiment uh, possible. So <laughs> sorry, I'm having a holistic. It certainly could be, it certainly could be, but the, the idea is that like, uh, in this instance, we use an impossibly large number because it made it certainly in the non-concrete realm, uh, which is something that I think is great about pairing that keeps bringing me back to it, is that you can have somebody in the concrete world and somebody in the abstract world, right? So to intentionally bring the pair to the abstract world from the concrete world is to use that implausibly large number or the ridiculously uh, unrealistic client uh, expectation or the this certainly would never happen edge case but let's think about what would happen if somebody were to gain access to all of our secrets in the system right like those sorts of experiments there i think can put you in a very specific mode of thinking that i you can then bring back two more concrete and go okay well now that we've thought about it from this abstract area here's what it means to apply it so even like talking about just like meta conversation ourselves here having a conversation about like, oh man, that was so cool that you brought it into like this like implausibly large uh, number here. It's a technique that I love to then apply it in more concrete way. Just like, yeah, and that's another great thing. One of the questions on our on our docket list right now is why? What keeps me here? Why do I think this is so important? This is yet another example of why is that we can flexibly go in and out of these different types of thinking. Sorry, I just sort of zoned out thinking about that for a moment. But uh, that kind of interruption in the, the flow like that take is this like spacious moment to say, oh, 
right, we have somewhere we're going with this, but <laughs> you don't have to give up those deeper moments of flow or connection in order to be going somewhere. You just have moments where you're like, oh yeah, we're oriented to an agenda. And you accept that there's a little bit of interruption in breaking the flow. Yeah. But one of the things I think, think is amazing about pairing for me as someone who's really digressive or discursive in uh, as a failure case anyway, is that holding a goal and a structure socially is so much less fragile than holding this like crystalline focus that programmers sometimes talk about. Like there's a description of the cost of interruption early in the canon of writing about software. I don't know if this is Joel on software or somewhere else, but that's like, oh, your five minute or 15 minute interruption is actually destroying two hours of productivity. And it goes through this parable in detail because of a programmer's focus being so valuable. And that is my experience of the struggle to do certain types of things entirely on my own, but it's just not present in a parent pairing paradigm. Like I, I lose 10 or 20 seconds of, yeah. of focus and coherence. And then we like reorient ourselves and just get back to doing it. It's not just let, being let me... able to start. Well, I, I want to finish this thought. I will let you, uh, but it's not just being able to start from cold. It's also being the fact that you can start from cold mean you don't have to carry the state or worry about interruption. As long as you have enough of a framework to orient and direct and align yourself. All right. Now, I have, to, I have to jump in, right? The whole, the, the pairing, this is, and Jesse, we have actually even had this conversation. We know we are digressive and we will end up at Richard Feynman at some point, right? We are going to end up at you Feynman will. at some point. Yeah. And, <laughs> only to illustrate what you're thinking, right? So, so I, I, there's this whole model that I just have to use. I call it return from digression. And the thing about Mala is it, when my kind of role in the pair is that return from digression thing. I had to build that skill in pairing because I digress so deeply. Um, and so the first, you know, the last time I was in meat space with, with Mala, I just, all I was, was a rubber duck. She's like, I've got this problem. I'm like, Oh really? What's this problem? And I just sat there and, Let me and tell she's you like, all about it. <laughs> right. And, and she like processes for three minutes. She's like, got it. I'm like, okay. And you know, I went and did something else. Right. And, and, and it's, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous, the thing that we're all pointing to is paired context locks. I think Jesse and I know that we're absolutely hyper vigilant people and we're paying attention to everything. And you get a process hyper vigilance, right? It's like, we're ooh, is this something I already know? <laughs> That's right. I don't know anything about that. Right. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> And the other time, so the fact that you have the pairing list, you are better at the return from digression than me. You are reflexive at it where I have to, uh, to do effort. And so I noticed that immediately when we actually sat down to try to do something. It's just like, boom, there is a burn. You, you say burn down list. Anyone who actually knows how to live burn down list it makes me very happy. All right, so I couldn't I couldn't resist that, Jesse, because to me, what it is is once you add the pairing tool of return from digression, you get into something that you know is interesting, but then anyone in the conversation could say return from digression, and we go back to the top. What are we talking about? Pairs getting to know each other, sure. pairing. What do you that's interesting. We always called it offline police, and we actually had these whole cans that you would pop just to make it very funny, so nobody ever took it personally on accident. Oh, are those like the air puff slingshot things? 
or are you describing something else? No, no, something else. Literally, like kids, like uh, like they put on like little gloves that look like Hulk hands, like bright green foam oh, Hulk things. Hulk hands. Hulk yeah, hands. so you would okay. like uh, like two oh, fists and you, in front no, of you. you them together and they make yeah. a roaring sound. No, I my I had a my kid sister had those. Yeah, yeah, no, it was meant to be like a, a ridiculous, right? Like it's similar to the like way billion number that we can't even think about. Sure. So that way everybody can go like, oh yeah, yeah, maybe we don't need to talk about, you know, <laughs> the fact that, you know, Phoenix is very hot and dry when we have a goal here, right? And nobody gets offended. We, we all, everybody has a laugh and you move on. So I think part of what we're talking about uh, with focus being fragile um, and with returning from digression, uh, for me, the way I think about this is in two ways. One from uh, Dungeons and Dragons, D&D, when you have to roll for concentration and you get you take battle damage, you have to roll yeah. to maintain that concentration, right? Uh, if I lose my concentration, you have a reaction that automatically restarts my concentration. Perfect, right? Amazing. We love it. Um, that's kind of how I described like homebrew <laughs> rules for paired concentration in spell casting. It's like, oh yeah, two wizards working together are much better at holding a spell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's it's that like return from digression is that is what a large part of pairing is, is that it's highly empathetic, right? You have to be very aware of the people and humans in your space. And it's the reason that it makes it a non-negotiable for me for that reason is because you end up building software and solutions that are more cued in towards the actual human user because you spend your day with people, thinking about people, you have a pleasant experience, you're not getting burned out because you're a solo banging your head against a keyboard trying to figure something out. This is a highly cerebral field, right? So you're yeah. getting the emotional support that you need on a consistent basis, which makes it easier for you to then be able to turn on and give that to the product that you're working on. Even if it's not a user-facing product, maybe you're working on an API interface, which is just another product tool that somebody else is consuming, right? Like that allows you to do that. I think yeah. it genuinely makes better software. This so thing have, that we're talking about. I have a bunch of discursions that we shouldn't take right now, but that I want to read out into a system that will get read back in. Uh, is that something that you can do for us? If I read this yeah, list of things, that. you can make sure that this comes back in to us as producers of this podcast. Because <laughs> what you just talked about around the emotional support and costs of this work is a deep, deep thread. Jerry Weinberg is an important mentor and writer to me. And one of his first, maybe his first big book was called The Psychology of Computer Programming. And he's also, when he looked around outside of the field he was working in and, and tried to find solutions for the problem he was seeing, this was like 40 years ago or longer, he found himself in family therapy and family systems as a source of wisdom and information and you know translated that into the, the consulting or the computer software context and that was what a lot of his work ended up being is virginia satir but for software um that's probably a too shallow or unfair summary to everyone involved but it gives the gives the thrust of it and there are so many different ways that I think that this wants to go. This is what I, I'll, I'll do the station ID in a moment, but I wanted to read out this list because management at Pivotal, which isn't something we want to talk about right now because it's not your experience, but management had a need to be supportive and to be structured in a, a way that 
became dysfunctional, I think, in other contexts. So this emotional support type manager doesn't work if that's also the layoff type manager, right? You can, you have to pick one. And if you pick the emotional support one, then you can get pairs that are really working together and really addressing problems and moving forward. And if you have to pick the other one, that becomes a real challenge for everybody. Um, the, I mean, that may actually just sum it up. I, I thought it was going to take more points than that, but that's the episode that I think we need to come back and talk about later here on Radio Free XP, which you're listening to now. What to, we're talking about today is me and Mala as pair practitioners getting to know each other and learn Mala's journey with all this stuff, whatever you want to call it. Fortunately, you have a list of I the do. questions that Tony likes to work through. What is left on our list? We have actually crossed off all three, the how, what, and the why. Oh, great. So we, yeah. we could declare ourselves done. Uh, I don't think we are. <laughs> I mean, the list was not definitive. That's true. That's true. Well, I mean, stopping heuristics and slash the halting problem are uh, real hard, right? This is very <laughs> true. Yeah. And for every really hard social problem, the a highly developed practice of pairing will have developed a bunch of solutions because we face these problems. We tell each other about them. We orient the, on them and we solve them. I think of in this particular case, one thing we don't have, uh, let me back out a little bit to pivotal tracker as a way. How did you, let me turn it into a question first. Did you use pivotal tracker in your, I Early I did use Pivotal Tracker in my earlier experience, yeah. One thing I found really interesting about Pivotal Tracker was the way that it really clearly incentivized everyone to define when we were done with things. And it didn't do this in a way where it's like, oh, there's a field labeled something like victory conditions or acceptance criteria. But as a, as a thing that we try and accomplish every time we're making a story from the title to the description to the pointing to the tasks within it all of it is meant to be able to be something that you look at and say hey have i done this am i finished doing this and i think pairing really needs this and that it really gives pairs a moment to celebrate and to maybe choose a different pair to take care of each other and notice each other's human needs there are all these different this like big mesh of reasons that I would hesitate to point to any one of them as dominant, but a stopping heuristic, a definition of done, a completion criteria is the sort of thing that if you have fluent pairs working on a problem for a while, they'll tend to develop. Even if it's just time boxes, like time boxes where you cut yourself off because you've run out of time before you run out of steam. Yeah. That's interesting. See, the only way that I know how to create cards and actions as a product manager is through what I learned through Pivotal Tracker. So when you said to me, you know, it's so interesting to me that it like it incentivizes you to know when things are done. And I'm just like, you know, that's true. I do walk into some places like I, I started using some other platforms just to see what else is out there now. And I find myself manually typing in description, uh, acceptance criteria, details, uh, stuff like that, uh, user story. and adding tasks that give that sense of completion because uh, another thing that you mentioned that's i think really important too is celebrating wins even if they're very small right 
because we oftentimes in the not having a stopping heuristic will go on for so long and not realize that we accomplished seven things yet we might still go home you know downtrodden and feel like oh man i didn't do anything today simply because we didn't take a second to be like hey high five we finished the list right. of three things, right? <laughs> Especially if you're dealing with a burn down where mm -hmm. you're in a context where you're learning what might need to be done. Because if you're trying to use a burn down model, but you're in a situation that continuously generates new or replacement insights about what you should be doing, that drive to see the thing go down to zero work remaining is doomed. It's really emotionally frustrated. And so burn down can be really useful for things that can be burnt down. But if you're putting yourself in a context where you're having a backlog continuously is a good thing. You really need to move celebration from we're finished to we did another part of it. Yeah. Even if that's an arbitrary mile, like I'm not a fan of arbitrary deadlines, um, but I am a big fan of arbitrary milestones because it makes sure that you're in that habit of always taking a second to reflect and say, here's what we did. So something that I do on my team that I think actually could be considered a, an arbitrary milestone is on Mondays, I do what's called a Monday up instead of a stand up. It's a Monday up because we all are human. We go home on the weekend, you know, we hug our kids, we touch grass. Sometimes we stare at the wall for three hours. Whatever you do is what you do in your time. But when you come into work on Monday, you've forgotten everything about work, which is the right thing to do. You need that time, right? So my Monday up say things like last week, we accomplished these things. Even if it's uh, something like we upgraded the plugin to like version 3.2 from version 3.1.8, right? It doesn't matter how small it is. It's stuff that we completed that reloads the context that you need to start working that week. It highlights, you know, here are the meetings that are coming up this week. Uh, here are the, the major changes to the project that happened last week. Like um, one of my projects that I've got right now for a client, we finally agreed on with the client uh, when our soft launch date is going to be, which feels like a celebration from a product perspective. And it's still something that I think even from an engineering perspective is great to have as a celebration as well. Uh, before I do that on Mondays though, <laughs> is on Fridays, I write down all of the cool things that happened. And then I go, what is the coolest, right? And I try to get to like maybe two sentences max because as I'm writing that Monday up, because I'm not trying to do that on Monday, right? I want the same thing as everyone else. Yeah. I write it on Friday and I take the cool things and I say, hey, happy Friday. Thanks so much for all the great work you did. Hey, you, you learned these things. Hey, you know, welcome to the company. You, you did your first pull request wherever this week, like high five, stuff like that. And it introduces these little like arbitrary milestones that make sure that we're always in the habit of reflecting on what we've done and reflecting on uh, accomplishments more so, I think, even than a retro because a retro is really kind of a generative experience as opposed to just simply receiving like, hey, I'm giving you a high five. Yeah. Well, and so I think that clicking finish on a story and seeing a test turn green are all non-arbitrary milestones. I think yeah. a lot of the XP practices from TDD to thin story slicing, this is less about pairing, honestly. Pairing like creates this environment that that really benefits from it and can, is and supports it. But here you get into like these practices are mutually supportive, but they're not necessarily totally bound to each other. 
And I think that some of these like feedback and celebration pieces really go great with pairing. And in cases where pairing isn't happening or isn't indicated, because there are cases where maybe it's contraindicated for a time or a place or an activity, some of these other things still really do their work. And those micro moments of non-arbitrary recognition are so powerful. Like I'm in favor of arbitrary milestones. That's a great idea and a great formulation. One of the things that I find really powerful that is like unlocked in the way that what you were saying about the emotional availability that you can get from a well-supported pair, like one of the things that is unlocked by design and product thinking being really pervasive throughout the entire team is that those milestones can be meaningful. You gave a couple of specific examples of arbitrary uh, milestones that aren't to me aren't meaningful. It doesn't matter that I updated this version to that version, but the practice of explaining why it matters all the time, the user story practice is a thread of this, the, the, uh, format of just saying why you want something or who it brings value to turns everything that is reasonable to do into something that's reasonable to celebrate. And on some level, if you have this environment, you get the great privilege of having this test where it's like, if it's not worth celebrating, why are we doing it? Yeah. And like, interesting is there a way that we can tie it back to why it actually is worth celebrating or is it dead? Is it a dead thing that should not continue? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think that's something that when you get a group of pairs, there's this really wonderful self-reflection that happens all the time where you, at least in my experience, and I'm not sure if this is what was taught to us or just something that we picked up over time or even I have, but this always asking, is this ceremony still bringing us value Mm -hmm. like do we really need this do we really need two pre-planning ceremonies like is this still helping us out or do we need just one do we really want this retrospective ceremony uh or or should we would we benefit from frequenter or less frequent do we want it to be async and to reflect and change and be adaptive i think maybe as we talk about uh milestones and incentivizing uh stopping heuristics and stuff like that which um little mind tick right there um i wonder if that's part of what makes pairing work out so is that it brings us to a place where we can have those reflections and set us up for a space that allows us to be humans as we do that um sorry maybe i'm way off right now because I did that brain tick thing thinking it would be like a great thing but the brain tick was I put a question mark here asking do we want like a goal and stopping heuristic for the second half of the show right now like what that would that was look what, like or sound like that was why I brought it up and then we we had our whole orbit here and I think it's a very good question how would we yeah. know if we were done uh we can we, go ahead Tony we have a model. So in these conversations we insert this 10 minute station ID you're listening to Radio Free XP so that we actually are forced to not orbit. It's literally the, okay, there is a listener on the other end of this. They do want to follow a track. And so we try to keep that track right along with what a listener would follow on. 
and we learned this by feedback from listeners uh and then we resisted it like i like to do with feedback when i think i'm doing the right thing and then we benefited from it which is what i like to do even more <laughs> after i'm done with the resisting i i have so we we began this conversation with the discussion of the false but vibrant greenery in your background right behind my head is our soft stop technology we have not been using it here but uh you know for for putting time boxes that just visually are in in the room and run out that was literally uh, my first question mark on page one of my notes was <laughs> clock on wall because i thought i recognized it as that type of clock and i just had to know but i was like don't detract don't detract yeah. we're all on task this is amazing and awesome but thank you we find all oh, that feels so good <laughs> yeah no exactly so uh i think this is a, i can't remember exactly where i got it I, I should credit this idea better than i'm going to be able to but someone said this and it's stuck in my brain so much stronger than any attribution possibly could it's a great feeling to come back to an action item it's and it's a great feeling to realize you don't need to do an action item and pairing like really the the strongest pairs are able to both cross things off and realize that they are unnecessary or develop like realize that whole parts of what they had set out to do are not necessary now in addition to going through and knocking off each of these items on the list so that actually happened with our list our burn down list when yeah. you had asked if we needed any i was like actually We've already done all these. We're good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so my, my personal, we haven't actually ever done my interview of like my pairing journey, but an important moment in this was well into it, actually deep into my pairing journey. This is more with the TDD and the feedback thing. I, I talked with a pair about this whole problem that we were going to need to do. We were thinking we're going to have to store some state somewhere. We're like, you know, we, we went through and diagrammed it out, came up with an architecture and we're like, okay, great. Let's start TDDing this. We're working in Ruby and we wrote some tests and made them pass. And we're like, okay, we like this. We haven't gotten to the hard part yet. So like, this is just sort of like ramping us up. Warming up. Yeah. Wait a minute. We're done. Like, all of our tests that we could write, which we should still double check this, we'll write a few of them to make sure we got to a place that will make all this pass without any of the architecture we thought we were going to need to accomplish that. And we would have never noticed if we didn't have you would have totally it. tight pairing. TDD is the feedback that gave us this. When we wrote a test that was close to the end, but it just seemed like the next test to write. And then we're like, hold on, this this implementation, Ruby array subtraction, finishes it. We're done. <laughs> Mint. <laughs> right? Like suddenly two-thirds of the imagined work is cut away. Now, was the architecture that we put into that upfront waste because we ended up throwing it away? Who knows if we would have actually had the insight or been able to do what we did without having done that initial planning. But certainly it would have been waste for us to keep investing in it and like break it down into a whole bunch of stories and plan out. No, we had a framework where we could just start going and then notice that we were actually finished before all the work we tried to make for ourselves. Interesting. I'm caught thinking are tests like stories for a yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. No. So this is <laughs> this is the thing. The the slicing it up into chunks mindset is I consider fractility 
a sign of like fundamental cosmic truth. This is uh, this is maybe crack pottery, but when I see something that's fractal, I'm like, that's probably real. Story <laughs> slicing is fractal. Yeah, it's all the way down to the micro decisions you make about what test to write, what's a commit point, what story should I make, what's a what's an action item, and all these things are about noticing that you've actually done something. So to go back to this like celebration of what we've accomplished, that orientation towards noticing that we've done something is also a feedback point. Like if if you are operating purely off of feed forward information, your ideas from the past about what you should do in the future, and you don't have these moments to say, oh, we've done something, take in new information, you, you can get really stuck. Yeah. Uh, so celebration is also, <laughs> I guess the formulation of what I'm trying to say is celebration is core to agility. Like you, that those celebration spots let you change direction. Yeah, that's interesting. This whole conversation, like I can't help but to be reminded of, um, there's a presenter who also in Ruby talked at RailsConf like years ago where she did the Gilded Rose Kata and she talked about tests. And um, the Gilded Rose Kata is, is a common thing. She didn't make it up, but it's this very terribly complex legacy code base. You have to walk into and you have to implement a new feature, right? Mm -hmm. We've all been there uh, professionally, but she walks through how to reason through the tests. And there's at one point where she goes, wait a minute. So now that we have these tests, we realize we don't need any of this code and we love that. We don't have to think about it anymore. Just deletes yeah. lines of code. Yes. And she washes her hands and walks away, right? That feeling of like, wait, I was holding all of that in my context, in my own state, and I don't need this precious thing. And it's safe to do that. Like that feels great. And the way that you were describing that moment where you had spent all this time, like thinking about, we need this, we need that, whatever is in your pair. And you wrote your test and you went, wait, we don't need that, whatever, right? That that same feeling, I think, uh, is just really cool. Um, so maybe that might be a great thing for other people to go and watch and experience that <laughs> feeling vicariously. But yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you're, I think you've put your hand, your finger on something else that's really important. Pairing is associated with this notion of collective code ownership. I like to take it further in a balanced team context. I don't know if you've had experience with this idea of like a collective product ownership where like engineers need to be involved in these conversations with users, support sales, design interviews, engineers yeah. need access to that information so that they can be part of this concept. Agreed. That's can... why we use user stories to help them remember that they can't be in every one, but they need to have a tie in to understand what it is. Otherwise, like the thing doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, user theory, user stories have this property in common with a lot of things that can be distilled into a procedure that, you know, a lot of people have very flat, what's the point of this disappointing experiences with user stories. It's like, this is, this is weird and it doesn't bring any value. And like, why are we, I mean, if you're talking about a server upgrade, sure. <laughs> well, I, honestly, you can be talking about products, right? Whatever. Like it's true. Yeah people can be trying to use this type of language and not having this vibrant experience of having been connected to the purpose of the work that it's meant to do. Uh, and this, I think this tends to happen to things that can be broken off and written down and, and sort of executed in isolation. It's like, oh, here's the act of making that piece of advice transmissible means that it's also capable of being tried in a place where 
it won't succeed, but it's maybe good enough that it's an improvement over whatever they're doing now. And so it like claws on in this half alive version of itself. Yeah. And I think that maybe it, I suspect that in those same places, in the same way that the way that I learned what uh, a card or a task or ticket, however you want to represent that unit or work on a board in the way that I learned that that's supposed to be a reminder of a conversation you had. Yeah. If you don't remember what it is or what's going on, ping your PM, ping your team lead, ping somebody else's team, ask your pair, right? Always ask. It's a reminder. It's not everything there. And to me, the user story is yet another reminder of, oh, yeah, this is who we're doing it for. And here's why. So right. when I write my user stories, I don't, it's like, I, as a, I want so that I add because at the end. And that because is that like, oh yeah, no, like if I was that person, like, yeah, I want an easy way to do this task because I don't want to waste my time either because I want to go like hug my kids or whatever it is. But having that real human voice there from things that, especially if you have had access to uh, recorded user interviews that you can grab snippets out of, so you can actually mm -hmm. play that snippet. <laughs> to me, that's what that because oh, is supposed that. to embody that, right? So you can almost literally hear the voice of the, the jaded user that, you know, is testing your search function on your e-commerce platforms. Like, oh, I, I'm just trying to search for a table. Why am I getting all of these screws and nuts and bolts? And why, why is there a $300 table at the top of this list? Like, this is this is horrible. This isn't what I want, right? Like that's where you insert that actual user voice I'm into that because it's out here because of how horrible your data. Yeah. Yeah. These are wonderful. I love when these things are recorded. Right. But again, it's that same concept. You, we had talked earlier on about how, uh, sometimes the importance of what you do is explaining the why we're doing something than it is actually what we're doing. And to me, user stories are the same way. They, it's important to remind ourselves why just as the task ticket whatever you want to call it, is a way of reminding ourselves of the small step we're making towards our larger goal there. And that's important too. And I think that in places where they feel that way about user stories, I wonder if they also feel just as disenfranchised about how their user tickets, cards, whatever, are sliced up as well. My time timer, which we were reminded we've got to like use on the wall, minute. has like a sliver <laughs> left. And the thing I love about yeah. this technique is that you can see when it's about to end, you can see when it has ended, but it doesn't interrupt you. There's no alarm on that, it's just a soft stop. So my time timer is telling me that it's time for us to think about whether we're done, and also to say, to remind people that you're listening to Radio Free XP. I'm Jesse Alford, and I'm here talking with Mala uh, and Tony. I actually don't know your last name, it occurs to me, because I don't have it there to read in the little window about what your name is. <laughs> So are you going to tell him, Tony? Are you going to tell him how to remember your name? Oh, I know Tony. I know Tony's name. I was talking yeah, about Yeah, but it goes life. farther. Oh, it goes farther? I'm, I'm terrified. My, my <laughs> middle name is Neil. Oh, and no. My last, and my last name is Hansman, which yeah. you could, you have to squint, but you can get an anatomical thing hands? out of that too. Man. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, the, the question is, what's Mala's last name? Right. Oh, was that the actual question? I thought he was uh, referring yes, to no, you. I was like, oh my there. gosh, you've known each other for so long. And this is the first person whose first and last name I actually memorized right off the bat because of this mnemonic. I was so excited to share it. Uh, my last name is Janus or Janus, depending on how you pronounce it. It's the uh, Roman god of endings and beginnings. 
that may, that so is a little bit of a harder mnemonic to the the one that uh, <laughs> shaped out. Well, the so month of January okay. is the first right. month. It's the end of the year, beginning the new one. And then you just have to remember the, the JY things. <laughs> yeah, you got this. I believe in you. you this is totally fine. <laughs> All right, so I, I put another 10 minutes on the clock, and that will be the end of an hour-long recording session, which probably means that we should be focusing on wrapping up. We have talked about a lot. Uh, do you want me to summarize from my notes to kind of kick off this there, section? There's I one thing. I, but, Tony, what are you saying? There's <laughs> one thing. One of the other things that, you know, I just, I just laughed at. Mala, I think you told me you've done on the order of 50 RPIs. Oh, way more than that. And so Hundreds. this was a really, this was for a pivot, this was such a funny thing to hear <laughs> because at Pivotal, right, Jesse, how many, what percentage of pivots, labs or Cloud Foundry ever did RPIs? Oh, under five, maybe under, 10. Right. Possibly. The number of people who did RPIs at Pivotal, that was a special club. And I had no idea. So, I just yeah, signed up for it because it seemed like fun. It is fun. Right. You're a hundred you're hundred percent correct. You're hundred percent correct. But the goal of the RPI at Pivotal was to keep the hiring flow even. And so it was you actually had to study, you had to do all kinds of things to deliver an RPI. So you gave a high validity and high precision answer that matched up with other RPI folks. And answer. even then managers had to be informed about the variation in them. There's an East coast, West coast thing going on around the scoring of RPIs within Pivotal around, you know, the, the central distinction as I understand it, that they figured out they had going on was whether or not points are deducted for hints, like whether you get free hinting. And then this results in a different threshold. Right, so the system actually is similarly calibrated on the whole, because the you know a, a given person is likely coherent between the two. But when we started doing RPIing, when we started having interviewers, you know, countrywide pool, so people in the San Francisco hiring managers in the San Francisco office were getting information from RPIs conducted on the East Coast. We, we discovered this miscalibration and, and realized, oh, there's two different ways to interpret these scores. Which type of score am I getting? I wonder if this is related to English linguistics. Because there, I have uh, what's called a CELTA. It's a Cambridge certificate that I get to use so I can teach people who don't speak English, English. And okay. it was very hard to get. But one of the things that I learned in it was a deeper appreciation for the different types and ways that we communicate. When you need to teach uh, lower level English speakers how to politely ask for something, the way that you would politely ask for something on the East Coast versus the West Coast versus in England versus in India versus in Australia is going to be different because we use different layers of indirection. Over in certain areas of the world, I'm not sure exactly off the top of my head, which is East Coast and West Coast, but it would be uh, accurately polite for me to say to you, excuse me, I'm so sorry to bother you, but do you think that you might be able to do this for me? Whereas in another part of an English speaking world, that would be over the top. That'd be ridiculous. You would just directly ask like, hey, can you do this for me? Right. And that would be appropriately polite in that context. So I wonder, because the RPI is such a communicative and language driven assessment, 
like the coding skills are there too, for sure. Like, don't get me wrong on that. But I would argue that it is much more of a linguistics communication assessment than it is an actual, uh, whether or not you are a strong developer who understands your baseline development concepts. So if you were having a difference in East Coast, as soon as you said East Coast, West Coast, I immediately went, this has got to be a communication thing. Like, I bet you at the root of it, that's probably what it is. And it would probably be interesting to dive into the data then because I love data. Um, but if you were to take a West Coast person, have them interview with an East Coast person and vice versa to see how that changes um, at scale, if there are certain uh, slices of that data where it starts to break down and you might see that more that might give an idea that there, there might be something there linguistically, but maybe not. Yeah, I mean, we don't well, really and, want to prove a story that doesn't exist in data. That would be awful, but yeah, no. But the, a communication or a linguistics or an etiquette thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's really interesting because it, yes, it has that element, and I'd be really interested to see how much it's there. All all your curiosities, I'm immediately there for, and I have had the experience of watching a pivot take Chat GPT through the RPI, and the scoring difference mm -hmm. is not. I mean, actually, let me not let me give the information and then not jump to the conclusions, which is what I was about to do. It passes by one heuristic and it kind of can't pass by the other because it needs at least I say it needs in this instance, in this person giving chat GPT the RPI in classic form, right? Here's what we're doing today together. Here's how I'd like you to start. You know, let's, can you make that test simpler? All these, these core prompts that there's like a path that has been planned along. ChatGPT will pass if you're giving it a free correction on basically every point. It, it, it and that's, that's the West Coast way is you get a free, you get one free, like reminders, like actually remember we're doing this thing or could you do that simpler for me? for you know each moment and then if you're like resistant to that or you take a second one off for a given instance then you start to have the scoring go against you the west coast one is well the threshold for how many points is acceptable to lose this way allows you to lose more of them but you lose a point every time chat gpt can't pass under that scoring and it can pass under the one that allows continuous feedback I, and I think it, I just gave it away in my phrasing. I think that one of these is better. <laughs> like, I think the version of this that gives the free corrections is a better thing. Uh, but then again, I'm West Coast. <laughs> so yeah. I'm a, I'm a hundred percent. I'm a hundred percent. Yeah. Sorry, Mom. I feel like it's more reflective of the actual work experience because at no point is anybody that you pair with going to be like, what, you don't remember what we're doing today? Like, we're not mean girls here. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's more reflective to be like, oh, yeah, you know, like you must have forgot. Like, this is a new thing to you. It's, it's more reflective to be more empathetic, right? So, like, when I did them, I probably gave more more hints than I needed to. <laughs> I also wasn't classically trained in them. I was given things, so they walked me through it once and said, all right. You're you're it. You're the person that does it, and I I did it, and oh, I staffed out majority that of that's more... almost all of their offices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's more than good enough for someone who gets it right. And and one of the things that we I lied earlier when I said I wasn't taking my own notes that I was fully going to let you do it, but you know I thought I would for a while. Yeah, I was watching. Uh, cool. 
<laughs> you know, it was one of those uh, lies with good intent. So we've got a couple minutes left on this timer, and I have a, th a list of things I need to burn down. Do you have burned down things for our limited time together? I do not. No, I was okay. just going to recap to see if that generated anything. So it sounds like oh, you got right. it. Yes, the recap. No, I think that that's great. Let me do my burn down. Well, then we'll do your recap, and then we'll try and say goodbye in some kind of reasonably coherent timeline. Uh, all right. The things on my list are ostensive definition is such a useful concept that I, we have seen a bunch and that is what this episode is about, I think, on some level. Ostensive definition is when you get to point to something and say this. You like ostensive definition is saying what's a what's a can? This is a can. This is a drink, a beverage can. Uh, and you don't have to. You can directly rely on someone's sensory impression or conceptual impression of a thing, but just by pointing to it. Uh, it's what it's the technical term for any of these. Oh, an example would be handy right about now, like BDD sayings. This is all ostensive definition, and it's how people who are communicating across language barriers have to start. Right? There's there's a lot of ostensive definition in like shared communication around bootstrapping language and that's in like science fiction or anthropological first contact scenarios but it's also just when people who don't speak the literal same language want to communicate anyway and they're teaching each other languages that are not first con like they have dictionaries they're still using extensive definition um so that concept of teaching english to people who don't know it and having a credential to like do this well is really interesting to me and the main thing that it it brought up for me is the value of this concept of examples extensive definitions and you know dictionaries or translations are useful but they can't capture the richness of communication at some point you're going to use a phrase or something that someone don't doesn't recognize and have to give them some extensive examples so that they'll be able to integrate it and translate it for themselves to like build the concept for themselves um and i was really curious about your credential is that credential help making sure that you know things like that or is it focused on some some other part of this challenging problem Similar to pairing, it's focused on giving me the toolbox that I need in order to be great at it. So there's still a lot that I need to learn uh, continually about grammar, continually about uh, slang in different areas of the world, uh, which is what the most common example that I would think of when you refer to uh, extensive definitions being far more useful in dictionary definitions. Like you drove me up the wall. Not useful to look that up literally in a dictionary, but very useful to send a GIF of somebody going, right? Uh, right, yeah. That's much more of a extensive definition, um, brief, brief but it's news. primarily a teaching framework. <laughs> brief breaking news yeah. on that, like GIF of driving up the wall thing. Chat GPT image generation is fully displacing that like GIFy GIF lookup thing for communicating, and I bet that we will see extensive definitions from people going and using the chat GPT because the prompts and the way it iterates on them to do image generation is so much more fluent and iteratable. And like, you can just kind of throw thought words at it and then be like, no, not like that. <laughs> and it'll give you something. Yeah. You no longer have to hunt for the perfect GIF. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I was recently told by my very young friend that GIFs are cringe. 
Um, and so are all these emojis that we use, except for these ones. But then he asked me the next day if I was to pick an emoji to represent myself so he could put it into his phone book because everybody's phone book is getting an emoji, what would I pick? And I'm like, you're very confusing to me, child. <laughs> but great news, great news. The GIF is coming back and more accurate than ever. <laughs> <laughs> you well, heard well, it first the, on Radio Free XP. <laughs> no, well, let me let me let me calibrate that. The breaking news is that the GIF was and like Giphy was this like emotional concept query language, and it's getting replaced by an emotional concept visual query language that's much better uh, and much weirder because it doesn't have to be some actually produced media that actually made it both into pop culture and Giphy's library, it can now be a fully insane custom visualization that nonetheless gets your point across. <laughs> I have so many things to say, but we've been need a few more hours. So I'm just yeah, going to okay. so, no, draw that's a little exactly, on this for that's next time we sort, talk. That's the sort of thing that we say when we're trying to wrap up. Okay, the other things, I'm going to try and burn some <laughs> of this list more efficiently. Uh, I have a concept of things you need to hear versus things you need to say that occurred to me as I was writing this list, because this is often one of the, the triggers for me that I need to start writing down a list of things is I want to make sure that this point is covered. It doesn't need to be covered by me. I have to listen for it long enough to realize if I don't say it, no one will. And then I, I say it, but I'll say things much too proactively if I don't listen for them first. And so that is one of the ways that triggers me to write down, what am I listening for in case I have to say it instead of what do I want to get to? What do I want to say? Which leaves me constantly looking for places to interject as opposed to hearing what other people are actually saying. Um, I already covered, is this a communication or an etiquette thing? That was just, we already talked about that. I had received business advice for international communications, and you touched on this a little bit about the drives me up the wall thing. I've received corporate training about using the worst English, and I don't mean the worst English in the grammatically incorrect. I mean the deadest English in communicating with colleagues, especially in India, was the focus of this training. It wouldn't say it, which was really interesting, but that was clearly the context it was targeted at, you know, in the corporate situation. Um, and it wanted people to kill their language in a way that I found really appalling. And later interacting with colleagues in, and, and that was not an XP style workplace. Right. That was a different context. I was working support. I received this training. Um, I kind of ignored it. I, I tended to write very uh, emotionally present and intellectually interesting ticket summaries, <laughs> which, you know, was how I was staying alive in this environment that I didn't know how to reject or avoid yet. Um, yeah. But when I was working in a, a great, like, a better context. And I had colleagues who had English as a second language. We started hiring in Colombia, and I started interacting with these people. I realized that that advice around avoiding idiom and speaking very clearly, restricting your vocabulary. This is like the fixed mindset of language advice. This is like how to make emergency labeling level communication legible 
but we are not usually trying to write emergency labeling level communication when we are trying to collaborate with people. You can't pair or collaborate with people, but you can use these things yeah. and yeah. be like, hey, I see that confused you. Do we get like, oh, did we just find an idiom? Let's dive into that idiom together. Like, Yeah, especially when there's a time zone difference or it's asynchronous conversation. Right, so the one right, thing right. you mentioned that you've written Go before, right? Yeah. Like Golang. Have yeah. you read the Go Proverbs or the Go Parables? It's not ringing a bell, but that doesn't mean I haven't read them. Oh, they're they're wonderful. So it's a list of different parables and they say things like, um reflection is never clear or ceiling is just c but it's not like they're very short pithy phrases but one of them okay. says it is better to be more clear than more clever and then it goes on to say that reflection is never clear right <laughs> um but when we think about language especially in if we've already got a background in go uh, which is what prompted me to think about this is that it, it's better to be more clear than to be more clever. If you look at the one line statement, the some some whiz kid um, did a one line regex that like nobody understands how it works. That's very clever, right? But it's not very clear. You can't maintain it. You can't understand it. You can't reason about it. And oftentimes with language, that's the difference. You can still have fun with your expression so long as you're careful about your clarity. You might need to use a few more words. You might need to consider using a different language set. But with all creative expression, constraints highlight creativity more so than a free box does. Yeah. The thing that I was thinking about in, in this is like the expression drives me up the wall. This is a great opportunity for someone who's encountering it to learn English. And if you're in a live collaborative environment where you can give that person space and feedback and have all the things we talked about earlier that pairing lets you do for your work on your product is also work that you can do on and with and for your colleagues, where it's like, I can create a space where you're le learning English and our programming together are mutually supportive activities. So now they need to learn their job and do their job and learn a language at the same time. When usually a lot of those people, a lot of the students I had were actually out of Columbia, uh, yeah. are already going to extra classes that are very demanding the same way that pairing is a very emotionally demanding thing. The way a CELTA class is run is a very emotionally taxing and demanding thing as well. Uh, oftentimes they'll bring in phrases that they heard from work too, but uh, I would just interject real quick for with like a user empathy like yellow flag on the on the racetrack here is that like it can yeah. be unfair uh to, yeah. to ask somebody to have to do all of these things when they're simply trying to learn how does this api work i come from a soap background because that's what i learned at the universidad here but now everything is using rest in the american world right like they're already doing that translation versus oh. now also trying to puzzle out what does he mean by this that the user feels this, what is it? Let me go look that up, right? Like, and right. there's only so much that translation software, including AI, can help with that. But right, well, and I've, soft spot. We 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 touched a spot for me, but <laughs> no, no, and, and this is this is great. This is a spot for me too because I am someone who discards and pushes back a lot on feedback that sums to be more legible, get your abstractions clearer use fewer words, use bullet points. A lot of this stuff is not actually good advice. It's 
things that people say when they're having a problem following what I'm talking about. But that feedback is good. The advice may be bad, but the feedback is good. And one of the clearest places where this defeats my defenses and I'm like, okay, you're probably right. I need to be working on legibility is when I was working with this you know, young woman from Colombia, and she's like, I, I love what you're saying and your energy. If I could only understand it a little better. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have a lot of inherent empathy for people who are like, when they say, I, if I could understand it a little better, they mean the concepts. Um, but she meant the language, just like, what are you actually saying? I am having a hard time with it in the context where we were able, were able to work closely together and give feedback and make space for the learning. Like when we were playing D and D or pairing, we, we did that on clock. Uh, we played D and D. This is one of the things that was very productive for that team and the, the language skills and that sort of thing. It made a different sort of space for it. Then it was fine for me to to use that stuff, and we could like do that. I could support the growth and make the space. In context where I was sort of speechifying to the team, I was in a leadership role, right? For people who were already really fluent in my language, those that speechifying was effective. I was doing an effective leadership thing, but it was really alienating for the people who high charisma role, <laughs> right? Like who weren't there, who who like weren't understanding the words or the the higher level negative charisma uh, modifier. <laughs> create our cultural um fluency that i was calling on like wasn't there for them yet and i didn't have time or like the the feedback channels to notice or engage with that that was happening for them and then i would get this kind of heartbreaking feedback afterwards and i'd be like okay i didn't do the right thing in this case and i i need to you know go home and rethink my life so that i can serve these people better um i think our clock just ran out again and I think our actual, we have other it things did, happening yeah. in our lives clock has finally run out as well. So that's going to turn out to be our stopping heuristic for when we're done today. I'm good. Thanks that. so much for coming on. Yeah, for sure. Maybe next time if I come on again, I can interview you about your pairing journey since you said you haven't done. been interviewed yet. Done. Oh no, <laughs> that would be awesome. Cool beans. Yeah, no, this is a great idea, and you've done the thing that you could maybe set us up for next time. If you have a summary that you have written down that you could go over, this is a do it, um, write it down on Friday, read it out on Monday sort of thing. I, I don't, you know. Also, the calendar happens to say that we don't have time to hear that summary right now, but maybe that summary is where we we start another conversation. I will send an email to this uh, invite, which should have both of our, all three of our emails on it. And maybe yeah. that'll be a good starting point. All right. Well, this has been wonderful. Cool. Thanks again for coming on. I look forward to it. Yeah, likewise. And thank you all right. for inviting me. Of course, Mom. Of course. Like uh, uh, to find a pivot in the wild who's not connected to the hive mind. No, I say no. <laughs> right. So, well, it's, you, yeah. you can say no, but it's also really exciting. Oh my gosh, it's so we don't exciting. Know, yeah. We don't know where all the pivots are. We don't. We don't. Right? Radio Free XP is a, is a blind broadcast to what I conservatively estimate is about 30,000 people. Right? That's probably the footprint of what we directly touched in the last 10 years. And then there's another probably 20,000 people that were at Pivotal over its 30-year time. Maybe not that high, but there was a lot of people who went through Pivotal. And so 
Radio Free XP is it's a it's a blind broadcast, and whoever finds it is going to find out that there's a community, and we're going to organize that community. And so, in Arizona, you've got me and Mala, and you've got a couple other pivots, and you've got some customers. You've got some big customers who are very versed in our model. Um, and so, in your metro, there's going to be something too. And if I can just enthuse about this for a moment, there, there's a hybrid vigor situation here, right? Pivots from outside Pivotal have exposure to a totally different set of like versions of the experience that is corrective to some of the things that are maybe not great about the Pivotal version of the experience. So there's, there's an amazing opportunity for us to have these great conversations that are better than the conversations we would have if we were only talking to people who had our versions of the experience. It's Monday, November 13th, 2023, and you've been listening to Radio Free XP with Mala Yanis and Jesse Alfred. I'm your host, Tony Hansman, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free XP. If you're interested in helping with graphics, bumper music, or other aspects of production, or if you'd like to be on the show, please contact Jesse Alford or Tony Hansman on the Pivotal Alum Slack. You can also reach us via email at jesse.alford at pm.me or precept at gmail.com, respectively. <laughs>